Good morning, my name is Zach and I'm part of the staff team. And today marks the beginning of a new sermon series that's going to see us through until Easter. And we want to talk about hope this term. If we were honest, for many of us, hope might feel like a bit of an elusive thing in this last year. Every time we've pinned our hopes onto something external, whether that be 2021 being uh, normality with no restrictions in place anymore, or the Christmas plans that we were assured weren't going to change, or maybe even still the initial hope that we had that lockdown would only last three weeks in March last year. Whatever assurances or plans we've seen crumble in this last year, I'm sure all of us at some stage has faced disappointment. And I think most of us have realised by this point that attaching our hopes to decisions of government or to the predictability of a pandemic or even the changeable nature of life right now will get us nowhere. We can't attach our hopes to those things. And in response, we have one of two options. The first is to become a bit disillusioned, to just be fed up and disengage with where we are to kind of batten down the hatches and wait for something to change. Or another option is that we decide to put our hope in something entirely different. Each week this term, we're going to walk through encounters with Jesus in the Gospels, incredible stories of Jesus meeting with people and transforming their circumstances and their lives. And we really hope and pray that as we read through each of these stories, that the hope of Jesus might grind us afresh. This morning I'm kicking off with a very well-known passage. It's in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, from verse 35 to 41. In fact, it's so familiar to many of us that as I begin to read it, you'll likely begin to skip to the conclusion because you know what happens next. And so before I do read it, just take a moment to pause right now. Take a deep breath. And I want you to allow yourself to hear it as if you're hearing this for the first time. I want you to imagine yourself in the position of the disciples with Jesus in this passage and invite God to speak, to share something and show us something new as we read it together. You might even want to close your eyes as I read it out now. Mark chapter four from verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the sea. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats there with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely gone. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked one another, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I want to talk about perspective this morning. And I want to look at three perspectives at work in this passage as we reflect on this incredible encounter with Jesus. Three different interactions, 
so we can build a full picture together and reflect on the ways that this passage might offer hope to us afresh in the season. These three perspectives are, first, how the disciples face the storm. Second, how Jesus faces the storm. And then third, how the disciples face Jesus. And so let's dig into this passage together and let's look at it through the lens of this first perspective. How do the disciples face the storm? So this passage in Mark, it lands as we begin right at the end of a quite an intense full day. Jesus has been teaching cries about the kingdom of God. And it's likely he's been standing in the boat that they're in now the whole day, slightly offshore, so that he can project his voice to large crowds that have gathered at the shoreline. And so it's understandable that he'd be quite tired. He's been balancing on a boat all day teaching. And so he suggests to the disciples that they should move away from the crowds and travel across the lake. Now, if you know some of the history or geography of the Sea of Galilee, then you'll know that it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And it's surrounded by hills. And what that means is that often it's completely pristine and still. It's the kind of lake that shimmers and reflects the hills in the background. But then at no notice, it, immediately a storm can come up because of the change in, a slight change in atmosphere and it become quite treacherous waters to be traveling in. And that is what goes on that evening. As they make their way across the sea, suddenly the atmosphere changes. A treacherous storm begins. It's a furious squall is the ways that the, uh, the passage describes it, which isn't really a phrase I'd understood before. So instead of that place, I want you to imagine an intense, focused, sudden and violent windstorm. That's the image to have in your head. They're sailing through an extreme storm. They're part of their way into the journey, so they're too far from the shore and they're not close enough to the destination. And not only that, it's also dark, so they can't actually see fully where the shoreline is. There's no natural light. And there's no electronic light, obviously, to guide them there. And so they're stuck, completely stuck. In my early 20s, I lived beside a river in Aberdeen called the River Don. And one day I decided it'd be quite fun to do a bit of an adventure with my flatmates. So I looked online for the cheapest possible inflatable dinghies and I managed to find one for five pounds. So I bought three of them, one for each of us. And I thought since they might not be that great for flotation, I'd also buy three uh, pool noodles. And to complete the look, three foam pirate hats. <laughs> um, they all arrived and the day came and we blew up the dinghies and it turned out that actually the dinghies were kids' dinghies, not adults' dinghies, as you can see in the picture that's up now. But we weren't uh, dissuaded. We decided to keep going that we thought it would be a fun thing to try anyway. So we got down to the river. We all managed to hop in, slightly sinking in our dinghies, but just about keeping afloat, and started floating down the river. Initially, it was a bit like one of those lazy rivers um, in a resort or a water park. But we turned a bend and it started to pick up a little bit of speed and we could see in the distance that something was changing. It actually looked like rapids were about to begin. And suddenly our dinghy and our pool noodle didn't feel quite up to the challenge of tackling proper rapids on a river. But there wasn't all that much we could do. We were too far from the flat and our car was sitting at the end point of the, the journey. 
So we kind of knew we were just going to have to go with it and hope that uh, everything turned out okay. Alongside that, as we reached the start of the rapids, there, we happened to be beside a park and there were a group of kids that were standing at the edge of the park decided to watch us and shouted just as we started on the rapids, you're all going to die, which uh, was reassuring. Um, thankfully, we didn't die. <laughs> None of us even got close to drowning, but it could have gone very differently. That is not what's going on in this passage. The disciples weren't novices. They weren't traveling on ill-equipped boats. In fact, at least four of these disciples were lifelong fishermen who had navigated this sea as their livelihood and as their family business. Not only that, the boats would likely have been built for use on this lake. They had everything prepared and equipped that they possibly could have. And yet something was going on that was beyond their control and they were panicking. There's nothing melodramatic about that. There was nothing irrational about their panic or ill-planned about it. They knew fine well that the state of this storm was enough that it could kill them. And where is Jesus? He's having a nap. He's sleeping through it. Because now do you see how crazy this story is? And you can see from the disciples' perspective why they're panicking. They manage to wake him up. And while they're shouting over the wind that's howling past them and the waves that are crashing over the boat, they say, don't you care if we drown? Look at this storm. Look what's going on around us. Don't you care if we drown? That's the words they use. In the midst of this legitimate danger, Jesus is asleep. I wonder if any of us have felt a bit like that in this last year. As we face this global crisis and many of us feel very little security in our work, with our health, we find ourselves more isolated than ever before. And we brought those feelings, that sense of being out of control to God. And maybe it's felt like he's been asleep. Maybe even you find yourself asking the same question in honest moments that don't you care what's going on? I can't pretend to offer a robust theological answer if that is been, has been your experience, and I don't think I'd want to try. But it does reassure me that we find this exact scenario in scripture. The disciples are asking this question of Jesus, the Son of God. It reminds me that human experience throughout history has wrestled with this, that at times God allows there to coexist both some kind of chaos and also his presence. In fact, you see it at different points through scripture, right back even in Genesis at the point of creation. So if you find yourself a little bit stuck here, if you find yourself asking these questions, then I just want to assure you that you're not alone. Not only are millions of others sitting similarly in this season, but throughout history, people have found themselves here and asked this question of God. If you do find yourself here, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to invite God into the midst of it, to show him where he is. Our prayer ministry team would love to do that at the end. So please do take advantage of, of that. Just click the button. It's very simple, straightforward, it's anonymous. You'll only be known by the people who are on the team. But for all of us, all of us right now, I'd love if we take a moment 
just to name if there have been things that have felt insurmountable to us in this last little while. To name it before God. To name the places where we wonder where he has been. You might want to say it out loud. You might want to write it down. But don't pretend that it's not there if you've been asking those questions. Let's just do that for a moment. And what this passage does offer us, in this perspective, as the disciples are viewing the storm, is a reminder that Jesus never leaves. While the disciples are (laughs) perplexed by the fact that Jesus is asleep on the boat, they are aware that he's there. Jesus doesn't bail. (laughs) He doesn't disappear. His engagement with the storm is unexpected, but he never leaves them. And so I just say to you, don't mistake God's silence for his absence. God is with you. Wherever you are, take hope. Take heart and have hope. God is with you. He might not be responding to things in the way that you expected him to, but he's not absent or distant. So if that is the first perspective, the first puzzle piece of this story, the disciples facing the storm. The second perspective they need to look at is how Jesus faces the same storm. I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep on a stormy boat crossing. Some of you are from Northern Ireland, so maybe make that journey regularly. Uh, my wife Lindsay has family in Shetland, and so often when she was younger, she would take the 12 hour boat from Aberdeen to Shetland and back again in order to visit the family. And she would say that often the one thing you want to do if it's been a stormy night is sleep on the boat, and often it's the very last thing you're able to do. And yet, somehow in this storm, Jesus is sleeping. And we know at a very human level that he was exhausted after a full day's teaching. But there's more going on there than that. When Jesus wakes up, it becomes clear that very quickly there's another reason why he's able to sleep. That reason is that the storm simply doesn't take him by surprise, nor does it cause him to fear. And to be honest, I am quite glad that's the case. God is not afraid of a storm and he's not taken by surprise by it. God is not afraid of this storm and it didn't take him by surprise. It's an interesting fact. This is the only place in the Gospels which accounts of Jesus sleeping. I mean, we know that he slept, he slept regularly, but this is the only time where the Gospels take note of it. Whereas there are plenty of times where everyone else is asleep and Jesus is awake. So if you notice that, it happens a number of times throughout the Gospels. One occasion where that is the case is in Mark chapter 14, in a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are in this lovely setting, the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem. And they've had a long day and so they can't keep their eyes open. But Jesus is wide awake. He's sweating drops of blood in distress as he recognises the importance of what is to come, as he wrestles before his father and wants and is preparing to give up his life to save us. 
And as he's doing that, he keeps coming back to the disciples and finds them asleep and wakes them up to say, couldn't you stay awake for one hour with me? You see how there's a parallel going on here? And I think what we can learn from that is that Jesus is awake when it matters the most. Jason Upton is a worship leader that I'm, I really respect from America, and he preached on this passage. And what he said was this, he put it like this. What might it look like for us to be asleep to the things that Jesus sleeps to and awake to the things that Jesus is awake to? What might it look like to be asleep to the things that Jesus sleeps through and awake to the things that Jesus is awake to? And that's not to ignore the reality of the challenges we're facing, but I think to set our focus differently. And so as part of that, let me ask you a question. How many times each day have you had conversations with someone about COVID, about restrictions, about the potentials and unknowns of the coming weeks and months? How many times each day in the last 10 months have you worried about and verbalised that worry about the potential unknowns of COVID? And maybe even how many times each day have you checked updates and, uh, on news articles about the latest stats and articles and interpretations and predictions around what is coming and guideline changes that might be about to happen? Probably lots of times, if you're like me. What might it look like to spend less time talking about and thinking about the constant changes and unknowns in this pandemic life. Less time thinking about the stuff that's outside of our control and more time awake to the God who's with us. More time awake to what God is doing amongst us and more time looking at how he's calling us to respond. I think this perspective, how Jesus engages with the storm and how Jesus is asleep to the stuff that he isn't afraid of and awake to the stuff that's important, gives us an opportunity to respond similarly, to set our attention on and meditate on the stuff that God is doing amongst us, the stuff that God is at work in, and to trust him with the chaos, with the stuff that's outside of our control. Let's invite Jesus to give us his perspective in this storm. And then the last piece of the puzzle, the last perspective we need to dig into in order to get the full picture of this story and how it might offer hope to us is how the disciples face Jesus. So let's go back to this scene one last time in the passage. Waves are crashing over the boat. Wind is threatening to capsize them. Jesus is asleep and they are shouting for Jesus to wake up and help. They say, don't you care? Why are you asleep? And I just want you to think for a moment as you read it. What are the disciples actually asking Jesus to do? What are they expecting him to do here? I think they're expecting him to maybe pick up a bucket and help bail some water out of the boat. Maybe at most call some fish to drag the boat to shore because they've seen him manage to miraculously gather fish around a boat already. And so you can see that's the expectations the disciples have of Jesus. And then you can almost imagine the scene. Jesus wakes up stands up as this boat is rocking backwards and forwards and get waves are crashing in. And rather than pick, taking the bucket that's being offered to him, he turns around and looks at the wind and the waves and starts shouting at it. 
even if I was getting drenched by waves, it's likely to have been the kind of thing that's caused me to pause and wonder what's going on. Like, what is he doing? He's not helping. And he is literally shouting at it. The word that he uses for peace here isn't like shalom. It means literally shut up. <laughs> or hajerwist if he was Scottish. I would have caused, would have caused me to pause, right? And I'm sure the disciples did too. And then in the next section, what he does next would have caused them shock and awe, and we see that it does. He says three words, peace, be still, and the wind and waves respond. They're silenced and there's immediate calm. Look at how the disciples respond to that. They're more afraid of what Jesus has done than they were scared of the storm. They're terrified. In fact, N.T. Wright's translation describes it, the reaction well, he says, great fear stole over them. You see, the disciples are shocked by the man they thought they knew in front of them, who can somehow say, peace, be still to the storm, and it responds, it obeys him. The man they thought they knew, the man that they've left their livelihoods to follow, reveals these far more than they could ever comprehend. And I think Jesus even realises that when he turns to them after, because he asks the question, why are you so afraid? Do you not get it yet? Do you not see who I am? And you know, this isn't the only time that that happens to the disciples. Time and time again, these same disciples who spend all day, every day with Jesus, get a little complacent. And they discover that they have completely underestimated who Jesus is and dropped the ground in fear and worship. It happens in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, the Transfiguration, when Jesus reveals his full glory. And it happens in chapter 16 at the resurrection when they realise that Jesus is risen from the dead. And you know, it doesn't end there. John, the Apostle John, who lives the longest of all of the disciples, at the very end of his life, he writes the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he is met with a revelation of God. He's met with a picture of Jesus, which is so profound that the words are, it causes him to drop to the ground as if dead. Right at the end of a life of a disciple who has known Jesus in person, up close, who's followed him, who's built the early church, he, even him, can become overwhelmed by the reality of who God is and, and realise that he had an incomplete picture of Jesus. If that is the case for the people who saw Jesus up close, the Son of God in flesh, do you think that your perspective of God might be too small? Have we boxed in Jesus? If you think you have a full handle on who he is, then it's likely that your perspective of Jesus is too limited. And you know, in our context and time, we think we ought to be able to fully understand everything we know. But that simply is not the case with Jesus. The more we pursue him, the bigger we realise he is. He isn't just the pal who comes alongside us and helps us out when we're in a bit of trouble. Jesus is Yahweh, Lord, creator and sovereign. He is the God who says peace to the chaos and it obeys. That is the Jesus we worship this morning. That is the Jesus who offers himself to us. 
So if I encourage you to close, don't allow the chaos and the storm of this last year to shape your perspective of Jesus. Don't allow it to reduce your expectations of who God is. He is still the God who can say peace to storms which feel far, feel far beyond our control. And they obey, to, they obey him, they're obedient. Jesus is the hope which lasts to us. Jesus is your real hope. The hope that Jesus offers is far wider and far deeper than any hope of return to normality. Jesus offers a hope that echoes into eternity. Let's pursue him again today in all his mystery, wonder and majesty. Let me pray for us. Yes, Jesus, I pray that in this moment, you would give us a fresh, your perspective, your perspective on where we are right now, your perspective in this season. Would you remind us that you weren't surprised by, nor do you fear this storm, this pandemic. And God, I pray in this moment for each person, each member of our church family, that they would see again in this moment a bigger picture of who you are. We would become discontent with what we know. Would we constantly strive and pursue you? Jesus, I thank you that you're far bigger than even our wildest dreams. You're far more than we could ever comprehend. And yet you offer yourself to us. What an incredible truth. And what a reason to worship. We praise you again this morning.